0: Hi, this is Steve, host of In Good Faith. And before we jump into today's interview, just a quick reminder, we hope that you will share these episodes. Anytime you see an episode, whether it's in our app, whether it's in your podcast aggregator in Apple, Spotify, wherever, there's a place you can click and share. And so if you think of someone who'd be into this, why not share the episode, help spread the word and today we're going to speak with someone who pulls together a lot of interesting religious philosophy uh, heather bigley senior producer for in good faith is in studio hello and how did you find orin that we're about to speak with
1: orin had a new book called your heart was made for this and i that title just grabbed me because i think In today's world, we don't feel like we're made for this. We feel like, can I hide in uh, my TV room uh, watching Netflix for the rest of the year?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and he talks about our nervous systems are not made for the world we live in because there's just too much input. I'll let him explain more about that. But this idea that there is a place in our heart that we can find a kind of a peace and, and a solid ground to help us get through the rest. Is actually quite encouraging that his subtitle for the book, Your Heart Was Made for This, Contemplative Practices for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. Orange J. Sofer teaches Buddhist meditation, mindfulness, and communication internationally and holds a degree in comparative religion from Columbia University. He's a certified trainer of nonviolent communication and a somatic experiencing practitioner for the healing of trauma. So it seemed
2: logical to start with asking why
0: he wrote the book.
2: So I started writing the book in 2020 during that really challenging year of the global pandemic, George Floyd's murder, Movement for Black Lives, and then a season of devastating wildfires out here on the West Coast. And as a meditation teacher, I felt like one of the things I could do to contribute was to talk about building inner resources How do we actually cultivate this buzzword we hear all the time of resilience in a really practical, grounded, and down-to-earth way? That was the initial impetus of the book. And then as I started writing, two other purposes emerged. I teach communication. I've taught thousands of people to communicate better online over the last six years or so. And one of the things I've noticed is that we need a lot more than mindfulness— and communication training to have better conversations. We need a lot of inner resources. We need patience, we need courage, we need empathy, we need compassion for ourselves as well as for others. And so for people interested in communication and improving their relationships, I wanted to provide a a broader kind of training for having the inner space to have the kinds of conversations we want. And then I've been meditating since I was 19. It's been a huge part of my life and I started meditating not only because I was suffering personally, but because I felt really disturbed by what was happening in the world and the, the levels of violence and poverty and hunger. And I wanted to understand as a young man, how can I contribute in the best way possible? And what made sense at the time was to look inside and to understand who I am and to build my own inner resources now that I have a child and so much has changed in our world over the last twenty five years, that question of how to best contribute reemerged in a different way, in a more profound way. So at the at the time of recording this, there's a horrific war unfolding in the Middle East. I have family over there, feel a deep connection to the land and all of the different people that live there. And I find myself wishing my book were less relevant. <laughs> oh, to our times, and challenged in uh, in many ways to um, to keep practicing qualities like like aspiration, holding true to a vision of a world of peace and justice and equity in a time where that seems so distant and impossible. Courage and integrity, the courage to keep opening my heart to the pain of what's unfolding. And uh, a real deep investigation into what is mine to do as an American, as a Jew, as a spiritual teacher, what is my role to play in this, and really listening deeply to that and connecting with my capacity for, for courage and integrity. And so the book for me also became a way of grappling with the question of what is the connection between our inner life, our contemplative practice, and creating a better world and a better future for our children.
0: Orin, you you stated it really from, from the very beginning in a sentence that made so much sense to me. Mm. You said, we are not necessarily built for the world we live in. You talk about the village that maybe our great-grandparents or, I mean, you could deal with what was happening with one or two people and people pitching in to help or the suffering on that sort of a scale, but the entire world is with all of us now through online, social media, and news. What you said about being overpowered or overwhelmed by what's going on really does make sense. And how do we find a way to live in the world we live in?
2: One of the things I like to say is that, and it's kind of ironic given the title of the book, our nervous systems were not designed for the world that we live in, culturally, technologically, economically, right? Our nervous systems evolved in a much simpler setting. So how can we exist in this world? that's where the inner resources come in is that what our hearts were built for what our nervous systems were made for was to thrive and to shine and to love and to fulfill the potential we have as human beings to bring good into the world one of the things that's been just so moving and nourishing for me as a new parent is having this really tangible confirmation of so much of what I have believed, learned, and experienced through my own meditation in the being of our newborn son. He's a year old now, but just to see the joy, the curiosity, the authenticity, the generosity that we come into this world with, it is so very clear that we need to be taught to hate. We need to be taught to disconnect from that beautiful nature. And so how can we exist in this complicated world? I think it begins with learning how to unlearn all of the things we've internalized and reclaiming our better nature so that we have this kind of firm, beautiful, generous foundation from which to engage and from which to make choices.
0: You've put this together in a very practical way, 26 qualities that you've chosen. And you even mentioned if, if we were to spend two weeks thinking, studying, meditating, and applying, we'd have a year's course of study in, right. in living in the world we live in. <laughs> yeah. trying, uh, you start off with uh, this quote about uh, from the Buddha about irrigators channel water, fletchers shape arrows, carpenters fashion wood, the wise train themselves. So here is your year-long training course. What is it about Eastern thought that is different from what we might say the Western culture we lots of us have grown up in?
2: I think there are a lot of things that are different, but I think some of the key things that I'm building on here with that quote, which is really summarizes the principle that the book is founded on, is that our inner lives, our heart, our mind, our consciousness are not fixed that we have the power to shape the way we experience the world and the way we relate to what's unfolding in our lives. Two key things to point to that is different in Asian thought philosophy from Western traditions. One is that the heart and the mind are not separate. So ever since the Enlightenment, we've had this sense of kind of radical separation between rational thought and the emotional life intuition the realm of the heart that split doesn't exist philosophically religiously in asian thought and traditions so there's one word for the heart and the mind and it's the sense that the the seat of our consciousness and our awareness and the way we experience life is here in the center of the chest what we often refer to as the emotional heart so i like to use the analogy the human Being, our whole organism and all of its facets is kind of like an instrument. And the question is how well do we know how to play that instrument? Are we able to hit all of these different notes, right? The notes of joy and contentment and forgiveness as much as we can hit the notes of energy and resolve uh, and patience. Have we developed that full range of expressing our humanity? And that's really what I'm inviting people to explore through the book is how to develop these really powerful capacities and traits we have so that we can live more meaningfully, contribute more effectively.
0: And the fact that you use the word instrument there, any of us who have learned an instrument also implies a level of practice and development.
2: Yeah, it's a craft. It's a craft of the heart. And that's that quote from the Buddha, right? About irrigators channel water, fletchers shape arrows. It's like the contemplative recognizes that the ultimate craft is the craft of the heart, is of exploring kind of almost like an adventure, what it is to be human.
0: As you're working with people, what do we most often have to unlearn? Mm.
2: I think it differs for each of us uh, in many ways because we, we grew up in different circumstances. Um, we each are conditioned in different ways, and that's based on you know, our gender, our religion, our class, uh, all of these different things. Well, the fact is that we all internalize certain messages about who we are, what's possible for us, and what the world is. Some of the core things I see on the individual level, most of us internalize some kind of very harsh inner critic. We have not developed the skill, as one of my first teachers used to say, of learning to be our own best friend. Mm. The Buddha once said, there is no one in the whole world, neither an enemy nor a hater, that can do you more harm than your own untrained heart and mind. And there is no one in this world, neither a parent or a friend, who can do you more benefit than your own well trained, well guided heart and mind. So, this is one of the things I think we need to unlearn the habits of undercutting ourselves, undervaluing ourselves, questioning, doubting ourselves, criticizing ourselves harshly, and learn how to really encourage ourselves to be an ally, a support, and a friend. The other key thing that I think many of us stand to unlearn or at least question is the underlying views or assumptions we make about human nature and the world that we live in. I think that a lot of the suffering that we see on a global level, whether we're looking at the devastation of the earth, hunger or war, comes from a certain vicious cycle we're caught in. And I learned about this from Marshall Rosenberg, founder of Nonviolent Communication. And that is that when we have a view that human nature is selfish and greedy, that there's such a thing as people who are inherently evil and people who are inherently good, that we start to construct institutions that then create experiences that reinforce that view that we need to protect ourselves and we fear one another and we have to get the most for ourselves and our family. And if we cultivate a different way of understanding the world and ourselves, that human beings are naturally compassionate and generous, if we create the conditions for that to emerge, we start to experience the world in a very different way and open up the possibility of creating different systems and different institutions. And I'm not the kind of person who finds value in having metaphysical arguments about, well, what is true and what is really human nature? And that debate's been going on for millennia. What I'm interested in is what's practical and what is the effect of viewing the world in one way versus the other? And what I see in myself and the people I work with is that when we can recollect our capacity for compassion and generosity and others, it changes how we live and it opens up new possibilities. I'm
0: finding myself doing a little bit of translation between sort of what... Sound like Eastern terms and Western Christianity,
2: yeah, please. and the
0: idea uh, of becoming our own best friend i 'm just thinking of the great commandments of Love God and love your neighbor as yourself yes. and and maybe if we don 't even understand being our own best friend or loving ourselves, we may not have the capability to fully love others. i wonder
2: yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, and the thing that 's been so beautiful to me about the journey i 've been on. Um, ever since I started exploring the inner life, is that I find that each of those uh, strengthens and reinforces the other. Um, I'm comfortable with the language of God. I grew up Jewish. I think there are different ways to talk about the sacred and different ways we experience it. Um, And so our relationship with whether we call it God, the divine, the sacred, um, our relationship with one another, with our friends and, and our neighbors, and our relationship with ourselves each influences each other. And I think that, you know, we can have a very powerful experience of transcendence, of feeling loved, feeling accepted and held by something vast that then informs our relationship to ourself and to our neighbors. And we can have beautiful experiences with other human beings where we feel touched or moved by the love of another, by their acceptance, by um, their belief in us. And that somehow changes our experience of ourself and opens up new pathways for connecting with the sacred. So love that you bring that quote in. I think each of those, in each of those realms or dimensions of the interpersonal, the intrapersonal, and the transcendent can inform each other in my experience and have a role to play.
0: You weave in personal experience in very vivid ways. And one that I, I, I just really could picture, I think you said you were 19. Mm-hmm where at one point it's like you had kept yourself separated from your emotions by sheer busyness and right. accomplishment. And you talk about a moment when you you said, there has to be a way out.
2: Yeah, it was something inside me and uh, sort of Christian theological terms, we talk about it as the still small voice, mm. to feeling the call inside to something greater or different. So I was standing in uh, the bathroom in my college dorm room And for whatever reason, I just felt inside, deep down in my belly, this kind of flutter as I was breathing. And it felt like the tremor before an earthquake. There was this sense of just touching the surface of something that I had been avoiding and suppressing for so long. This deep well of pain and anger and fear that I had been running from based on some very difficult experiences I had in my family growing up. And touching into that, I was reminded of the sense of wholeness and wonder and freedom that I was quite blessed to experience as a young child for a certain number of years until things got very difficult in my family of origin. And it was that sense of, I want to get back there. There must be a way. And that was in a very real sense, one of the things that made me start searching for a different way of being and processing the difficult things that I had been avoiding and running from for so long. So I I talk about my relationship with my father who had a lot of challenges with his health And both the ways that developing equanimity, this capacity that we have to maintain perspective and to be balanced and non-reactive. My own sense of perspective on his life choices and um, my acceptance of the limits of my influence allowed me to become very close with him and to deepen our relationship in the end after he passed i recognized the ways that that i was still resisting or holding on to what i thought he should do or wanted from him and how because of that resistance to my own pain inside it limited certain closeness that i withheld some of my love from him so the more the more we can understand and and develop this capacity, the more space and breathing room we have to act clearly and to not miss things in our life, to understand the limits of our control and to still uh, respond with with a whole heart. It seems like
0: you find these teachings that they do translate for people of different faith traditions.
2: Can you talk to me about that? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that, that drew me to Buddhist practice was that one doesn't need to believe anything or sign up for anything. It's a, very, it's a very empirical approach to spiritual cultivation. The whole ethos is just check it out, just see what's true for you. And it's designed to take us more deeply into the experience of being alive and being human. It's designed to give us the skills to be more aware, to enhance the power of our attention and what we each discover with that and how we apply it is up to us so you know i have people from all different walks of life and religions uh, everyone from you know very devout practitioners to atheists and agnostics find a benefit from the training and the skills because it's compatible <laughs> with with anything because it's about connecting more fully with who we truly are and inviting us to discover what that is and giving us the tools to do that.
0: I want to ask about your faith journey, Mm -hmm. being raised in Judaism Mm -hmm. and then moving into Buddhist practice. Are those two different journeys or is that a continuum or a blending?
2: Yeah, maybe a little bit of both or a little bit of each. It has been an interesting journey. I think about these different practices and traditions almost like languages. They're different languages of the heart and for a variety of reasons, many of them historical, the Judaism that I was raised with didn't didn't speak to my heart. So much was lost in the Holocaust, so much of the mysticism uh, was lost. And growing up as a diaspora Jew here in the United States, you know, my family was Reform Jewish. So there wasn't a sense of being embedded in a culture and a tradition that would have been the case like 100 years ago. So there was kind of this hunger inside because I think my experience is that that, that many Jewish people are deeply spiritual And there's a longing for intimacy with the sacred and for meaning in life. And so, those needs were still there, but for all of those circumstantial and historical reasons, they were not fulfilled or satisfied by what was available at the time, Jewishly, as I was growing up. So, I I found that language and had those needs met through... Through Buddhist practice and there was definitely a period of adjustment and translations being raised Jewish with this very very firm value for not practicing idolatry thou shalt have no idols before me and here you know I am in this Buddhist monastery with a big statue and <laughs> incense and candles and this is you know Jewish part of me going this is not okay so it, it took many years for me to understand the inner meaning of devotion and that it's it's not about the external trappings, and particularly in Buddhism, it's different in different traditions. But in Buddhism, the the statues are nothing; they're empty. We're not bowing to a statue. It's what the statue represents. It's calling forth the the qualities of awareness and compassion and wisdom within our own hearts that we are devoted to. And so that that was a journey for me, and I still feel very connected to the Jewish tradition, but more in a cultural and ancestral way than in a religious way.
0: You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back with more with Oren J. Sofer. You know, there are no perfect people, and there are no perfect families and no perfect relationships. So how do we be good people and have good relationships and good families? How do we do better at what is most important to us? I'm here to tell you about The Lisa Show, Another in the family of BYU radio podcasts. Lisa Valentine Clark is a comedian, a believer, a single mother. She delves into the challenges and the relationships that shape all of our lives. Whether we're talking about parenting, mental health questions, social issues, being a caregiver, she and her council of moms tackle the topic. Yes, you'll hear from experts, but you'll also hear from the people who have been digging the trenches. She'll help you figure out this thing called life with lots of laughs along the way. It's The Lisa Show. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Just a quick reminder as we rejoin our interview that if you think interfaith understanding is important, please, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, be sure you leave a review for In Good Faith. And now back to Orin J. Sofer, author of Your Heart Was Made For This. Part of the book has uh, words we may have heard a lot. we mentioned mindfulness, concentration, those kind of things, but then yes. there's playfulness, yeah, and you refer to this as as knowing as a young man that you had lost something you had in childhood. Talk to me about the whole return of of play, even
2: yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is this is one that's been really fun for me to cultivate and and reclaim, and particularly as as we have a young baby, it's so easy and, uh, and, and accessible. <laughs> you, you see it happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's two things here, Steve. So one is that there's so much that can guide and inform our living and our spiritual cultivation and our work that we can overlook. And play is a great example of that. We need play to keep our hearts light and nimble and flexible and buoyant. It's something that all mammals do. It invites us into a more spontaneous and creative relationship with life, to let go of the fixed notions we have of time, deadlines, agendas, and schedules, even to let go of our self-consciousness and to be in more of an exploratory dance with what's unfolding from moment to moment, which has a vitality to it. So how do we reconnect with that potential? And how do we bring that quality into the rest of our lives? How do we play when we're folding the laundry, when we're doing the dishes? we can reclaim this whole dimension of our experience as human beings when we recognize its value and find, find ways to reconnect with it.
0: I will have to say that since A, having a puppy, and B, having two little granddaughters who are about age two,
2: mm. I find
0: I spend much more time on the floor
2: <laughs> Yes, I used
0: to. And when you talk about we lose our self-consciousness, suddenly realize, oh, I'm glad no one's watching me as I just realized I am... <laughs> pretending to be whatever right. to entertain the granddaughter or, or or get the dog all excited to play.
2: I love that example, Stephen. It it reminds me of one of the things that I have been so utterly surprised by and also deeply appreciative of in having a young child, which is what I see it call forth in others. Mm complete strangers when I, I walk down the street. I, I take a walk with, with my son often around in the neighborhood, and I can still put him in the in the carry backpack where I wear him in front. Right. And just the other day, I was, was walking in the neighborhood, and um, there's a pub nearby, and there were two middle-aged men sitting outside, sharing a beer. And as I turn the corner, these two men look at me, and then they look at my son, and their faces just lit up Just their eyes are glowing, these huge smiles. It's like, there it is. There's the goodness. There's the love. That was Steve
1: speaking with Orin J. Sofer, author of Your Heart Was Made For This. And one of the things that I found especially interesting throughout the interview was the wise man trains himself. What is it that we need to sort of survive and thrive in today's world It's the inner resources that we can only strengthen if we're paying attention to what's going on inside, if we're paying attention to our own lack and our own um, weakness, but also to the things that inspire us and draw us closer to God.
0: So with his different attributes or characteristics that you could concentrate on each for two weeks and have a whole year of study, it seems like the fact that you are focusing on those also draws you away from worrying about every—because now I can worry if I want about wildfires in Australia. At the same time, I'm worried about three different wars. At the same time, I'm worried about populism or which government is is being toppled by its people. (laughs) And it's just too much for one human being to, to take in. And I think we unconsciously try and feel responsible. And since we can't do anything for all of it, we do nothing. Yeah, I love that we could concentrate on these attributes, that it's our heart that can help our mind through that glut of over-information.
1: And I think the whole point, of course, is that uh, with that inner strength, then we do go and act. I don't think we have to solve every problem. I don't think we have to feel responsible for every problem. But that inner strength should help us be able to care for our neighbor, Right one of the problems that people have with meditation is how does that help? How does that solve something, right? Yeah. You're in a corner breathing. What about the world on fire? Yeah. And I think <laughs> Orange so far. Or, or
0: even our own life. Like, this is not ticking off boxes on my to-do list <laughs> right. today.
1: And, I, and if I don't do them, I don't have a job, which means I don't have, you know, my house. I don't have, right? Once you have that strength, once you've renewed yourself... Then you can go out and you can start dealing with the problems that face you and your community.
0: Yeah, so that this working, this inner work, can actually have an effect, not just on us, but our own larger world. Many thanks to Orin J. Sofer for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Leah King, Katarina Martinich, Josh Orton, and Ashton Rowan. Our post production sound designers are Mark Hansen, Daniel Phillips, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their, share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experiences are some of our best listening. If interfaith understanding is important to you, be sure you leave a comment or review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod, on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. And on YouTube, check out our videos, youtube.com/slash at in hyphen. Good hyphen faith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon right here in Good Faith.